take one. Welcome to Emancipated. Was it fast? Let me do one more. Welcome to Emancipated, voices and images from the Tom and Uncle Bradley Center. In this episode, we talked to Laura Gottesdiener, a Reuters journalist who wrote a report on how the relationship between drug traffickers and politicians in Honduras have a direct effect on the local population that is left with just few choices, be subject to the violence and exploitation that comes with that, join the illegal activities or migrate. Following the story of the Batista family, Laura Gottesdiener shows that the relationship between drug trafficking, criminality and migration could not flourish without an essential link, that of the legally elected and corrupted officials. What does it mean, she asks, if you are an average Honduran man or woman and your town is legally run by an elected official who is a major drug trafficker who controls the police force and runs the politics? Laura, can you tell us about the trials that are taking place now in the US that involve the drug traffickers? Uh, sure, sure. And thanks, obviously, for having me. Um, So there's been a series of ongoing trials in the Southern District of New York uh, in which a number of different uh, convicted or confessed uh, drug traffickers have been testifying for a series of years now um, about their links to the ruling National Party of Honduras. And what you can see in these testimonies and and what the U.S. prosecutors uh, have since said in in some of their most recent filings is an incredibly connected system in which drug trafficking has really, um, both the financing of it as well as the logistics of it, has really permeated some of the highest levels of the National Party in Honduras, uh, which has been in power uh, since 2010. It's one of the two major parties in Honduras, um, but it has been at this point in power since 2010 following the 2009 military coup. According to one of the recent filings by the U.S. prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, uh, you know, Honduras has become what they have termed, you know, a narco state. And they have also made it clear uh, that the current president of Honduras, uh, Juan Orlando Hernandez, is, has not been indicted. Um, has, there's no charges that have been formally brought against him, but the filings make it clear that he is under investigation. And in the filings, the prosecutors have accused him of using drug trafficking to exert power and control in Honduras. Why did you think this story was interesting? What interested me in this story is, you know, you get these very um, top level accusations. And of course, it's worth mentioning, um, you know, Juan Orlando Hernandez, Tony Hernandez, his younger brother, who has been convicted uh, and sentenced to a life sentence in U.S. prisons for drug trafficking. Um, and others, you know, have absolutely denied vehemently these relationships with traffickers. These are still, you know, ongoing allegations in, in the Southern District, at least in the case of the sitting president. But I think what interested me was, you know, if you step back and you ask sort of an average person, whether they're in the United States or Honduras or another country, is it a good or a bad thing if the government has deep ties or deep alleged ties to drug traffickers? People would say no. You know, that's probably not a good thing. But what I wanted to understand was, what does it actually mean if you are an average uh, citizen 
of Honduras, the majority of um, citizens in Honduras uh, live in poverty. So if you're an, an average poor family, and if your town is run by a now confessed drug trafficker and who served as the mayor, who controlled the police force, who ran the politics, who was a major mover and shaker in the ruling national party, does that affect you or not? And does it or not in inspire you or push you to flee the country? Um, because, you know, right now, I think there's a lot uh, of emphasis for very good reasons on the links between corruption, drug trafficking, criminality, and migration. Uh, but what I was really interested in looking at was at the very, very local level, how do these dynamics work um, beyond just sort of more abstract phrases, which I think you often get, um, you know, it undermines the rule of law. Okay, well, what does that mean? You know, I don't sit here in my apartment thinking about the rule of law in my city. I think about like going to the supermarket, buying food, being employed, being able to walk the streets safely. So I wanted to know what in the very day-to-day -day of an average poor family in a rural area where the majority of people are engaged uh, in rural areas in agriculture, what does it mean if your town is uh, not just taken over in an extra legal sense, but legally run by an elected official who is a major drug trafficker. How did you get in contact with the Batista family and um, what did you discover? So Milton um, Solis is the son of Iris Bautista. Um, he's 24, um, he's currently living in the United States, sending money back to his mother who uh, desperately needs, needs kidney uh, surgery and who has needed it for quite some time, but has been unable to pay for it. Um, I met him when he was traveling through Monterey um, and he has spent years, years of his life trying to enter the United States. Uh, he's the oldest son of the family. Um, his father was killed Uh, in the mid 2000s under you know, uh, unsolved circumstances, uh, which left Edis, you know, a, a single mom with two kids at the time, uh, pregnant with a third, um, unable to support herself, uh, had worked uh, in the coffee uh, industry. Um, after her husband's murder uh, and the evaporation of her, of her, in, of her income, She fled with her kids to San Pedro Sula. She was very afraid that there'd be retribution um, by those who had killed her husband, who had never been prosecuted, according to her. Um, and you know, pretty much as soon as he reached 13, Milton is the oldest son, really seeing how desperately the family needed money, he took off looking for work and he knew that he could not find it um, in El Paraíso. Uh, so, you know, he worked for a long time in Guatemala, he worked for a long time in Mexico, um, and, and just recently he was, um, he entered the United States and is now sending money back from the United States. But so I, I met him and you know, he started telling me a little bit about his family, um, a little bit about this, this mayor. And I, at first I was like, nah, you know, he must be exaggerating. Um, but once I, I went there and I, uh, visited and I talked to a lot of, um, small landowners or people who didn't ever own any land, so landless farmers, uh, as well as human rights activists, lawyers, um, feminist activists. They really described a situation in which the rise of drug trafficking created an economic boom that, like many other economic booms, really only affected an incredible sliver of society, the top of society. 
And meanwhile, um, and there's some fantastic anthropologists who've done work around this, meanwhile, the expansion and the control of drug traffickers over this territory fundamentally shifted land ownership and land relationships and land use in the area. So some anthropologists are really starting to theorize drug traffickers as this new you know, bourgeoisie that comes in, buys up land in cash. I mean, they have incredible amounts of money. And if you don't want to sell, at least according to residents, human rights experts, you know, they, they can offer you cash or they can offer you, you know, violence. So, you know, they can purchase and did, uh, you know, in his testimony, Alexander Don, if this, this mayor, confessed drug trafficker, you know, testified that he had 15 ranches and 10 houses. And, you know, every, um, when I spoke to Don, you know, talked about how he and his allies, including his family ties, had bought up large swaths of this land, had shifted um, the land use from being used for, for coffee farms, uh, which is an incredibly labor-intensive crop, especially over the harvest, uh, destroyed these coffee farms because they don't need the incredibly meager, you know, saving, or uh, sort of, um, they don't need the profits of these coffee farms, especially since the coffee farming industry is tied to, you know, international prices. It can be extremely volatile. We're talking about people who are moving uh, hundreds of tons of cocaine to the United States. So they, they don't need this land for really anything except for uh, transport across the Guatemalan border. This region is the very uh, westernmost border with Guatemala. And so they um, destroyed the coffee farms. They uh, built cattle ranching farms instead, or some new cattle ranching pastures instead, which was, you know, in some ways a legitimate industry, mostly a front, also used to launder money. And this is something that you see across parts of Latin America, uh, where narcos will invest in rural land and invest in cattle ranching. Um, there's been some incredible anthropological work on this front. And what ends up happening, or what happened to the Bautistas and to thousands of other day laborers and either landless farmers or people who owned very small plots of land, um, not enough for subsistence farming, is their low paying and hard jobs, right? We're not talking about, you know, a uh, fantastically lucrative salary, but their jobs picking uh, coffee, which especially during harvest would employ the entire family um, and would allow people to make enough to live on to support their family, um, disappeared. And in the absence of those jobs, uh, cattle raising you know, does not employ a lot of people. Um, and particularly what was interesting is it does not really employ women. So coffee picking you know, um, does, and it, it can employ obviously men, women, obviously children. You know, I mean, again, we're not talking about the highest standards of human rights work, but we're talking about an incredibly poor area that has always been neglected by the central government in which families were eking out a living. Um, and suddenly, particularly women, um, but really lots of day laborers had no jobs. And so, you know, some people turned to participating in the growing drug trade. Uh, some of the women and girls uh, either turned to or were forced into the growing um, uh, prostitution and sexual exploitation industries that, that sprang up uh, to go along sort of with the with the drug trafficking and those who didn't or couldn't do either started to make their way north uh, because at this point you were dealing with rising violence in the area uh, growing unemployment growing hunger gr 
growing poverty um, and and relatively few options. One, one of the members of the Bautista family said to me, um, you know, some people went to San Pedro Sula or even to Cotigalpa, the two major, the major cities of Honduras. And, and again, this is, of course, in a period where you're seeing, uh, you've been seeing and you are seeing substantial migration from the rural areas into the major cities where then, you know, people are living in very precarious situations and and especially in the early 2010s or mid 2010s, incredible violence, uh, incredible amounts of violence and gang warfare in those areas. But, you know, he was saying, you could try to go to San Pedro Sula, but we don't have college degrees. And even the people who have college degrees don't have any work in San Pedro Sula, which is the which is the, the closest large city to El Paraíso. So, you know, I mean, most most of the older members of the family uh, did not read and write. So we're talking about people who have very limited job opportunities in the major cities and are very close to the Guatemalan border. So really, the migration from from this area has been to the United States. And, you know, as as many people have, have very well documented and people have spoken about their own experiences, once some family members are in the United States and then sending money back um, more people go to join them. Um, and so in just the last year, uh, since I've met the Bautista family, you know, almost half a dozen, if not more members have made the journey from this very small town uh, into the United States. And the majority of them are now, are now living in different US cities, uh, working and sending money back. You are listening to Emancipated, Voices and images from the Tom and Ethel Bradley Center. In this kind of a, an environment that you describe, is there any space for a civil society to organize, resist, or for a political opposition? That's a great question. Um, there are some some great human rights organizations operating in this area. Um, Iraq is one of them. Um, and song is another, um, but it's a very difficult space to operate in, uh, from what I could see. Uh, I mean, we're talking about territory that has been controlled primarily by drug traffickers since the early 2000s, since the turn of the century, um, and continues to be. I think that's um, another important part of this story. You know, uh, the mayor, Alexander Don, uh, turned himself into U.S. agents in 2019, has since testified against himself in court, uh, you know, as a protected witness. Um, but according to residents uh, and security forces or security sources uh, that we were able to interview, you know, his family and other drug traffickers still hold substantial sway in, in that town and in the whole area. Uh, this is an incredibly important part of the cocaine route that runs um, east to west across Honduras. So, you know, this man might not be in power any longer, uh, but it does not mean that the area is and the residents are free from uh, the control of drug traffickers. So uh, in that space, uh, it's, it's a particularly difficult space to organize resistance in. I think something that is important to, to highlight in this is, you know, Alexander Don, the former mayor, the convicted drug trafficker, has a very good reputation in this area of the country. Um, the, the current leading mayoral candidate is 
campaigning, saying that he is a supporter of Alexander Don. He's going to continue uh, with that vein of of leadership. He doesn't explicitly mean drug trafficking, uh, certainly. But you know, this is a man like uh, Pablo Escobar, like El Chapo in some ways, like many of these drug kimpins, has built up a reputation uh, that he is on the side of the people, um, that he you know, had a fifth grade education and rose to be a multimillionaire. And um, I think it's important to understand that that is in part due to the fact that the state had, the central government had never offered this region of the country any kind of uh, sta adequate standards of living, investment, infrastructure, nothing like that. Um, so in some ways, you know, he infused local politics, he infused drug money into local politics. He built this massive replica of the White House in this tiny town in the hills of Western Honduras. Um, but, you know, that is a reputation that you also cultivate, I think, with fear. So it is the type of situation where even, even today, people do not necessarily speak badly about Alexander Don. The Bautistas certainly do not speak badly about him. Um, but I, I wasn't really interested. He's a fantastically interesting character, but I was more interested in what are the structural impacts of the rise of drug trafficking and the fusion between politics and drug trafficking, and how does it impact employment, unemployment, land use, poverty, hunger, agricultural cultivation, even understanding that, for example, um, this isn't in the article, uh, just because we, we didn't have space to include it, but, you know, Iris, uh, you know, Milton's mother, uh, received money um, from Alexander Don, received support when her other son broke his arm. You know, Alexander Don is the mayor, handed out gifts to children in poor neighborhoods and gave money to Edith and others who couldn't pay for their medical, the medical care of their children. So this is a, somebody who was considered to be on the side of the poor. But in the background, his rise and the rise of other drug traffickers fundamentally made it more difficult for the poor to continue to live uh, in their homes and on their land by destroying the, the local economy, the local legal agricultural economy that they depended on. So who's fighting the corruption now? Um, both in Honduras as well as in Guatemala, we're dealing with the fallout of an effort uh, by local elites to get rid of you know, internationally backed anti-corruption or anti-impunity. Uh, bodies. So you're dealing with, you know, in Guatemala, the fallout um, from the ouster of CICIG, which was, uh, you know, backed by international bodies. It was, it was uh, uh, an anti-impunity um, body that prosecuted a major, a series of major anti-corruption cases. Um, and its corollary in Honduras was was called Masi. Again, uh, has been ousted recently. And so we're dealing with um, a situation in which, primarily. Guatemalans and Hondurans and citizens of those countries, um, but but really the whole the whole hemisphere is dealing with a situation in which um, there's been a real backlash against uh, anti-corruption efforts that uh, were having significant success thanks to the incredible and often extremely dangerous uh, work of 
you know, leading anti-corruption lawyers, activists, campaigners, um, and scholars in Guatemala as well as in Honduras. When did you choose to report on this particular town, El Paraíso, and its mayor? Yeah, I mean, it, at some points when I was uh, in Honduras reporting out this article, you know, I would speak to, uh, particularly to human rights experts, uh, political experts, and they were like, why are you focusing on Alexander Ardon? You know, there are a hundred Alexander Ardons. You know, everybody across the cocaine route is involved, uh, you know, which is certainly an overstatement, but what they were signaling to is Alexander Ardon is not in any way um, an exception to the situation of, of especially at the local level, um, but but as we understand from the from the evidence submitted in the Southern District of New York trials, as well all the way up to the national level, um, it's he's emblematic or an example in some ways of what is replicated hundreds or thousands of times over uh, in Honduras as well as you know in other parts of Central America, certainly in definitely in parts of Guatemala as well. Um, I was interested in specifically this case because he, one, there was a lot of evidence uh, offered by the fact that he has testified in court. So he testified in court, for example, to the fact that, again, these are allegations, testimonies that are, are disputed by the president and the former president, but, you know, he testified in court to the fact that he gave millions of dollars in proceeds of his drug trade to the former president, President Lobo, as well as the current president, President Juan Orlando Hernandez, in exchange for protection for his drug trafficking empire. So uh, he also testified, again disputed uh, by the current president, but he testified that he was the link between uh, Chapo Guzman, the famous convicted Mexican drug trafficker, uh, and Tony Hernandez, the younger brother of Juan Orlando Hernandez, who is also uh, been convicted for life of drug trafficking. And essentially, you know, Alexander Don testified that he brokered a 100 or a, sorry, a million dollar payment between El Chapo Guzman to Juan Orlando Hernandez's campaign. So he is a, a man who fundamentally altered an incredibly small municipality, uh, but he's also a man who has been at the heart in some ways of the flow of drug money into high-level politics, uh, the alleged influence of external traffickers, Mexican traffickers, over Honduras, Honduran politics, um, and in some ways the alleged uh, total impunity uh, in which some traffickers uh, who have supported the National Party are operating in Honduras. One last question, Alora. So Milton Bautista now lives in the U.S. Do you know what happened to other members of his family? Yeah, so um, so Milton um, was generous enough to, to help me connect with his family back in Honduras. Um, so I went to visit his mom, uh, his younger sister, Abel, who is his, uh, who is his uncle. Uh, he, Abel, had tried to migrate earlier this year. Uh, he and his son um, had reached the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, when they got there, the smugglers who 
uh, were going to take them or who were being paid to take them across across the Rio Grande River uh, said, you know, listen, your son, who's 15, has a much better shot of making it on his own. Because the thing is, you know, U.S. Border Patrol is not expelling back to Mexico unaccompanied minors. That was a, um, a pledge that uh, and a promise that, that he's kept that President uh, Biden put in place after taking office, um, obviously intended to provide safety and security for, for unaccompanied minors. Um, like many things, uh, many many aspects of immigration, it's a very complex space. And so the smugglers were aware of that um, policy pledge and have since uh, used it to convince many families to send their kids alone. And so so his son went across, uh, was taken into you know, border patrol custody. Uh, transferred to Health and Human Services, uh, an ORR facility, spent a few months there and was released into the care of family members recently. Um, and, and meanwhile, Abel, you know, after his son made it safely into the country, uh, tried to cross uh, undetected, um, was caught by Border Patrol, expelled back into Mexico and uh, headed back to Honduras. Thank you very much for talking to us, Laura. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Marta Valier, and thank you all for joining us. You have just listened to Emancipated, voices and images from the Tom and Ethel Bradley Center at California State University, Northridge. Please stay tuned for our next episode.